please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today comes from Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The New Testament reading comes from Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Jesus Christ. May you pray with me, please. Open wide your mouths, you tell your hungry people, and I will fill them, you assure those hungry people. We have hungers that we are aware of, we have hungers that we have stuffed with various junk foods and are not any longer aware of, but we're here. And Father, we would like it. We would desperately plead in our liking that you would open up your hands and satisfy our hungers. If we have ceased to hunger, will you awaken that in us? Give us a Christ-caused hunger so that you may feed us. And let this sermon riffing off of your scriptures, be as you promised your scriptures would be, profitable, useful. Would you do this? Because we need help, and we call on you to give it. In the name of our Master, Jesus Christ, we invite the Holy Spirit to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. To speak 
of man's search for God, said C.S. Lewis famously in his autobiography, is akin to speaking of the mouse's search for the cat. He had a sense that something was going on in his life, that he was being pestered, he was being sought after, that he was being come for. I just read Wise Blood and Hazel Moats. There you go, little one person. Has this inarticulatable sense of things that he's being haunted and hunted by this Jesus that he needs not to be there. And so he describes him, or the narrator describes him as this haggard feature creature who's moving in and out between the trees of his life, looking on. He needs Jesus not to be true because he feels him pressing down on his trail. It's interesting to me as we have been looking at this sermon series where we're doing a distillation of the basics of the Christian life. And you could say, for humans in general and Christians in particular, that you could sum up our approach to God as either moving toward him or moving away. That we're all either doing one of those things all the time. And sometimes we get so far away that we we don't even know that we're away anymore. And that repentance is one of the ways of coming back. Repentance is the description of what it's like to come back. And we've been looking at various pictures of that. And today we come where Jesus gives us some explicit insight about this search that Lewis felt and you've probably felt and Hazel Moats felt. And what drives that search from God? We're told that the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. And the Pharisees of the, and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners. And he eats with them. And I keep getting hung up when I ruminate on these passages with something that Luke seems to be getting hung up on. So that must mean I'm an amazing exegete. Or that he's just made something obvious really obvious. I think that's the more likely thing. When he repeats a thing over and over again, you start to go, huh, this is interesting. Why is it that all the wrong people can't stay away from Jesus? And why is it that all the right people can't stand Jesus? This is an interesting query for me. All the text collectors and the, the sinners, this is a pejorative term, you know, for the religious people are saying those on the outside, the nations, the, those Gentile dogs. They keep gathering around to Jesus so much so that all the religious people can say of him, that's all he does. Sit around drinking home-brewed IPAs and Partying with impolite people. He eats too much. He drinks too much. Too much. 
Dave Matthews, 1990s? No. But it's fascinating to me to think, why are all these wrong kind of people so magnetized to him? And why am I not all the time? Why are you not all the time? Well, we get confused. But Luke keeps bringing up to us all these different episodes of the people who believed all the right things, the people who lived in all the right ways, the people who had the right morality. Jesus never confronts any of that. He just says it's not broad enough, it's not deep enough, it's only surface, whitewashed tombs, he calls them. You'll remember two weeks ago, remember as well, not just member, You'll remember that two weeks ago, a lady came in, a lady of uh, repute, came into a Pharisee's house, a religious leader's house, and did something that every single person in here would have found highly uncomfortable as she doused his feet with the water of sorrow from her eyes and wiped the dust with those tears and her hair from his feet. And so here again, the sinners and tax collectors are gathering around him. And I want us to pause for just a second and realize that one of the things that is happening here is that these people who realize they have no other recourse, the people who know that they have, by the religious people's standards and even by their own, have disqualified themselves from access to God, They are drawn in. They catch a scent of something when Jesus starts to talk. They get a whiff of a different kind of way of being, a different kind of reality that's coming on to this world. We would call it the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus would call it, the kingdom of heaven. That this this new order is coming into being, and they get a sense of it, and they say, oh, well, then maybe we're not disqualified from everything good. Maybe we're not disqualified from life. Maybe we haven't taken ourselves out by our wrong behaviors or by the fact that we can't be as good as those people seem to be able to act like they are. And this issue of table fellowship comes up over and over and over and over again. It's a real thing. The Jews understood the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they understood that we are to be a separate people. We're not, to be, we're not to make ourselves unclean. And so they didn't want to be contaminated by those who were not in fellowship with God. And this, I think you would call it trope of dinner fellowship. Who sits at what table makes its way into all manner of movies and sitcoms and books Or the new kid comes into the cafeteria. High school cafeterias are fantastic places. Places people wish they could hang out in more. But the awfulness of them is only amplified by being the new kid. The new kid with funny shoes. And not the right glasses. And walking in and always, always, always there's a table. And at that table, there's laughter and hilarity and all sorts of obnoxiousness just wafting through the air 
from really beautiful people. They're always obnoxious and they're always really beautiful. That's the requirement. And there's this painful sting and it comes up over and over again because there aren't no people who don't know what it's like to want to be where the laughter's coming from. To want to belong. To not want to say, who who, who hate it when they're stuck on the outside and everybody there is having a good time. We torture ourselves with it. There's this thing I read about, uh, I think it's called Instagram. It's like this new thing. They, 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 they have it on the, the kids. They carry these computers in their pockets. And there are these pictures. And what you can happen is you can see, I've read about this. Um, you, you look it up when you get home. If you have, get on your dial up and, and see if you can see it on your computer. There are these pictures. You can see what everybody's doing that you're not doing. And you can see how magnificent their life is and your life isn't. It's really wonderful. And you catch wind of all the things you didn't get invited to. And you see it. And then you think, oh, yeah, I need to keep seeing this because I feel terrible. And then I can't stop. So I'll pretend like it. And then I'll dislike it in my heart and keep liking it. And then I will hopefully make other people feel that bad if I can get some good shots of something neat. Petting a goat at a wedding. I did that yesterday. But I didn't have a, I took a picture, but I just sent it to my wife because I didn't have anywhere to post it. All of the things I just said were true. If you need details and clarification, you may ask later. We want to, we don't want to be on the outside. We don't want to be excluded. We want to belong. It's a big question in our culture right now. What, how, who gets to belong? What decides who belongs? So this was going on in the first century. This is going on in ter- and there. It's going on in terms of religious and irreligious, clean and unclean. And Jesus keeps confronting this issue by letting the wrong kind of people belong. As if there's been a misunderstanding from the people who have had God's ways entrusted to them, they've misunderstood something fundamental. And here Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm here to smash to smithereens your misunderstanding. So that in and of itself should be comforting to start to think about. These, all these wrong kind of people who don't think they can be good enough, who, who haven't lived up to their own aspirations or certainly not to God's, they all think that Jesus is a great place to hang out. So when you don't think that, you're probably thinking something wrong. When it seems to you like, I don't want to go and be near Jesus because I've really fouled up. He makes me feel uncomfortable. I know the truth about myself. Well, so does he. They had this sense, I think. And yet they could come with them and they didn't get condemned and they did get welcomed in. And the Pharisees, who have this penchant for trying to lay out a real burn to Jesus, like, this man, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And Jesus is like, and they're like, score, got him, zinger. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. Thank you. That takes all the fun out of an insult. 
you insult somebody and they think you're complimenting them? But if it doesn't feel to you like a good thing to gather around Jesus, then you're probably misunderstanding something about him. Ask yourself that. And then when you're misunderstanding something about him, you have to wonder what it is. What is the misunderstanding? We are colossally bad at interpreting relationships. I mean, I know you're not, but most of us are. And what I mean by that is, there are so many instances in your life where if you're the only one trying to interpret what's happening in a relationship, you almost always get it wrong. Now, some of you, the more experience you have, the more wisdom you have, the less neurosis you have, you might get better at it. But if you are a parent and you text your child who's driving and they do not respond to you, then you are certainly, without a doubt, assured of the fact that they are dead in the Tennessee River if they don't respond in three minutes. You just know it. You know. You have an intuitive sense about things. It couldn't be that they're a teenager and they don't ever look at their phone. Because they don't ever not look at their phone, right? If you're calling your friend or you're calling your boss and you, or you send a text and they don't respond to you? Well, there's only one reason. Diabolical hatred. <laughs> they think they hate you. You're probably going to lose your job. And then, you've, then you start to imagine they still don't respond. It's been, it's been a few minutes. It's been an hour. It's been six hours. It's been two days, it's been four days, and then suddenly you've concocted a narrative that would make J.K. Rowling jealous at all that you've done wrong and how they never even gave you a chance. And then you find out later that all that happened was that one unfortunate day, they leaned over and their phone was in their pocket and it fell in the toilet. Oops, sorry, didn't have anything to do with you, their phone broke. If we don't get input from the other side on a relationship, we always come to the wrong conclusions, or very often. And this happens with God. It's so easy to imagine that whatever you've concluded that God thinks about you or thinks about things, well, then that's what he thinks. Because you have this lingering, ancient confidence that you and God are the same. And so we think, if I hate myself, well, of course, why wouldn't I? And clearly, whatever I'm thinking about me, God must share the opinion. Why wouldn't he? If I'm severely disappointed in myself for once again not following through to do the thing that I thought I ought to do, I once again didn't change the way I thought I would change. And I'm so disappointed with myself, I can't stand it. Clearly, God thinks the same thing because the way we think is identical. This is one of the reasons the scriptures are so profoundly helpful. If we're just making it all up as we go, we're going to come to all kinds of erroneous conclusions. If Jesus himself actually said these words, which we're here committed to believing that he is, did, then you get his side of the story, which is really reassuring. Because he says to these Pharisees, and we get to eavesdrop, hey, um, you know how you feel about all this. Can I tell you how God feels about these people that you're frustrated about? 
Would you like to know how God feels about it? Because I would love to tell you. In fact, hey, have you ever lost anything? He says to them. You know, anybody in here, I better I just start mentioning, mention anything that you have lost that is of importance to you. A phone, a, a wallet, a set of keys, an important tax form, a child. Hopefully not that. If you've lost something, what happens? Your focus and your vision shrinks. All that matters is getting that thing back. You forget about everything else. There's an intensity, there's an unwellness in you, there's a, I have got to get this, I don't care about anything else, I've got to find this thing, because life stops, as it were. And so he gives these Pharisees this story, he says, hey, pretend like you're a shepherd, you're around shepherds, you know people who have sheep. Somebody in our Lou Lake congregation owns a sheep farm. And if you had a hundred of them, and one of them ran off, well, you know about sheep. You can't stand to be alone. Our sheep farmer tells me when the one runs off, you always go, ah, they're going to die. Like if they get off by themselves, they're just going to die. Have you ever seen a sheep that does CrossFit? They're not really stout and self-protective animals. They're just not. And so he says if you had a hundred of them, as bad a business sense as it would make, In business, you think it's 1% loss. Mark it off. Count the loss. Put it against income next year. Get a slight tax break. But Jesus says, but you don't think in terms of income when you're talking about love. You, You just leave the 99 and you give a focused pursuit with all you got to find that one. And then when you find it, he says you don't, you wouldn't scold it. When you think you're, something's wrong with somebody you love and they, they finally get back in touch with you, you might be mad for a second, but mainly you're just overcome with relief and gladness. That anger, that worry, it totally transforms to exuberance. And that's what he says happens when he finds this one that runs off and he says, you pick that sheep up and you hoist it onto your shoulders and you come skipping home. And when you get there, you're so giddy and you know that what uh, Christopher McCandless discovered in Into the Wild when he thought, I'm going to find the path of happiness and he moves out to the Alaskan wilderness and he, and he winds up dying in a vacated bus scrawling sadly happiness is only real when shared you can't keep your happiness to yourself it's not complete until you share it and he says when you get home if you found something lost that precious you would call everybody you'd be inviting everybody in your contact list saying come on over let's watch the game You bring the pizzas. I'll make some beer in the bathtub. We're going to have a party. It won't be the same unless you're all here celebrating. Something magnificent has happened. I found this sheep that I lost. I've been asking you all to pray for me. Pray for the pursuit. I found him. Be happy with me. If you don't 
have a picture of Jesus that can skip and be giddy with gladness, then you're probably thinking of him wrong. You think of yourself as somebody he came after and he was glad. Yesterday was a, our oldest son is a senior. He'll, he'll let me tell the story. And I, I have several people during baseball games that I, that I text stuff to. I'll do this for Anders athletic things too. I, I mean, just for our, my kids, just because I, I, um, I lose self-control in my affection for them. And so I send these texts to friends, and I'm, they're just like, I just realized when I back up, when I get removed from it, and then at the end I apologize to them, like, hey, I'm really sorry. I know I've uh, exaggerated the importance of these things. I, I think it's because he's a senior, and, uh, and I just, you know, he's just better than all of your kids. <laughs> Our kids are just better than all of your kids, and, and I just want you to know it. No, that I realize, but that's what it could probably seem like it feels like to them. But you know what it feels like to me? I think they're fantastic, and I just want to say it. And it's not the same unless I can say it, and I can share it. And Jesus is constantly trying to get the Pharisees to see, don't you want to be happy along with God? God's happy because these people that matter to him, they bear the imprint of his image. He fought them up. They were his dream. He put them on this good marred earth. And he loves it when they come back. He loves it. Why are you so mad when he's so happy? You should feel a disconnect. Sorry. Just got a little carried away. But you should. And that's one of the things that Jesus, is really the main thing he's trying to do with these Pharisees. He's saying, hey, get in on the joy of your father who has propped himself up against the ruin of the world and he cannot abide the loss of any of these. He's been saying forever that he's going to go after the strays, the injured, because his own shepherds, his own kings, his own leaders haven't done it. So he said, I'll come and do it myself. That's how important it is to me. That gives us a mission. And it gives us something for our imaginations. We can imagine ourselves as those who have been sought after. And then we can imagine that that, it wouldn't be right for us not to participate in God's joy. Who reveals in just a few chapters later in Luke, the reason the Son of Man came is that he might seek and save what was lost. We get to join in on that. We get to join in on his welcome. We get to join in on letting people know. Not you have to be so good and you can be his, but that he is the God who pursues us to make us what we are not yet. And it's happening to me as bad as I am. And it can happen for you too through the son of man who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God the Father through him. I love the line that we just sang. It's ringing in my ears often. 
perverse and foolish oft I stray, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently lay. Home rejoicing he brought me. Will you let yourself be brought? And will you bring him to others? Let's pray. Oh Lord, as William still said, we are very odd sheep. And maybe I'm the oddest. But we come to you glad that our repentance is thrilling throughout the precincts of heaven. And that being so, as we prepare to come to your table, we ask that you would hear us as we make confession of our sin, the safety valve that you have given us to relieve our guilt. Would you pray with me on page two in your bulletin? You do the bold. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him There is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Take a moment to silently make the heavens rejoice by turning to Christ with your sins. <laughs> 